Please turn your Bibles to Colossians chapter 4 and find verses 7 to 17 where we'll focus our attention this morning. And I'm going to drop a few names and see if, if you recognize them. They all have the same major role in their life. They've all achieved way beyond their peers in their role. And you would know what they did if you know who they are. But consider if you know these people without Google, don't Google it, David Strong, Ann Hyatt, Tracy Britt, James Scott Brady, perhaps those names don't ring a bell. So who are these people that I know that you know what they do and have done? Well, these are the right hands of some of the most powerful and influential people in our generations. David Strong is Elon Musk's right-hand man. Anne Hyatt helps Jeff Bezos. Tracy Britt's the protege of Warren Buffett. And James Scott Brady was the force that directed your beloved Ronald Reagan. I thought about throwing Dwight Schrute in there with Michael Scott, but I didn't want to give it away. Many of us have likely never heard of Anne Hyatt or David Strong or others, but we're very uh, familiar with the effect of Twitter or X on our lives. We likely have a nostalgic uh, affection for Reaganomics, and even if you don't use it very often, you're in the minority if you don't have an Amazon account. And too often the world looks at the greatest achievements of uh, movements and assigns all the glory from it to the one person at the top of it. And far too often, that single person at the top of the totem pole of an organization is quite happy to receive all the accolades. In the church, however, for those seeking to follow Christ and make much of him by their life to bear fruit for his glory, those leaders should be and must be and are compelled to be thrilled to share the credit to pass the kudos on to other people and to spread the love around. How about these names? Tychicus, Onesimus, Aristarchus, Justus, Epaphras, Nympha, Archippus. You know anything that they did? Probably not much. In fact, if Paul didn't mention them, we wouldn't even really know them. But in many cases, Paul's condemnation of them and encouragement to them endear them to us and often open to us a window into Paul's apostolic ministry that proves to Paul there is no I in apostle. Paul was not in ministry for himself. Paul's passion was not for the fame of Paul's name to spread. And so when we read the New Testament, especially the book of Acts and the epistles, we see woven through them the labor of Paul's love and the fruit of Paul's ministry. We see the thread of loving relationships from beginning to end, from church to church, within churches, two other churches, and we see these names of men and women who served the kingdom under the leadership and tutelage of Paul, not as those who held a certain position, not as those who were leaders of an organization, not as men who did this or women who did this or people who filled a role or people who were cogs in a wheel or parts to a giant machine. Instead, they were those who were beloved of Paul, served by Paul, served with Paul, cherished by Paul. 
I think if we read the New Testament, we could come to the conclusion that ministry can be messy, fruit can be fragile, attaboys can be sparse. But love for Christ, love from Christ, love for those who are Christ's, they always make serving Christ a wonderful life. If you read Paul's letters and don't get that, you're not reading Paul's letters. You see it all over Paul's life. His life was hard. His fruit was so often future. Paul rarely got to see the beauty of what God was doing through him. His relationships often bore the scars of struggle and defeat and sin and difficulty, but he loved ministry. And in Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 to 17, we see kind of an analog picture of his network and his labor of love on the Lord's behalf. Paul is a figure in the early church that really has no rival. But it wasn't because of Paul's posturing of himself. It wasn't because Paul was seeking to take the headlines of Christianity today or pursuing the keynote speaking engagements at the big conferences. It was because of his love for Christ that eliminated the boundaries of his life and his love for those that served Christ with him that he gave his life to them. And that motivated him and that compelled him and that pushed him and that produced in him an insatiable passion to serve Christ with others. There is no I in Paul understanding he was an apostle. But I wonder if we took our favorite Christian celebrities and tested their approach to ministry, if it would be the same as Paul's. I really have no interest to do that. But I do care that at Grace Bible Church, our approach to ministry is like Paul's. From greeters to grace life teachers, from XYZ to MGM, from youth staff to grace guard, we should be serving in a reality that mimics how Paul served in his ministry. You see, if if we don't serve Christ how Paul served Christ and we consider our ministry, oftentimes it is just in fact that, our ministry and not ministry for Christ's sake. Too many too often serve ministry for ministry's sake, to build an organization or advance an agenda or to bring out something new because the old is boring. Or worse than that, they engage in ministry for their own sake, to feel indispensable to others, to be what others need, to be that thing that gets others from where they're at to Christ. That bridge can only be Christ, though. Or worst of all, people engage in ministry to be the object of others' worship. For others to be amazed by their skill, to be wowed by their wisdom, to be enthralled by the product of their life, whether it's a song or a sermon or a book. But not Paul. There was no I in his title of apostle. And in our text today, I want you to look at these words and feel the relationships that Paul has and and let what Paul did for Christ ooze out of these relationships that he had. Recognize in the lives of those that he loves and in his own life, Paul had what so many of us are looking for. We want more of Christ. And Paul says, look, 
find more of Christ and giving up all of your life and living with, loving, and serving others while you live for Christ. Paul found more of Christ. I pray that we will as well. So stand with me and read Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 to 17, where we'll learn of the example of Paul's ministry. Colossians 4, begin in verse 7. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you've received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, what a beautiful testimony of the effects of our Savior on Paul. His life all lived for the beauty of our Savior's church and the advancement of the gospel and the wonder of his kingdom. I pray that you'll help us to learn from Paul, to serve our Savior like Paul, to live for the glory of our King. Help us to set aside the selfish ambitions that so often go along with serving one another. Help us to get rid of the temptations to seek the glory of ministry for ourselves. Give us your direction and guidance as we long to live for Christ and make more and better disciples for his glory. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you, you may be seated. This morning, we're gonna be learning ministry from Paul's example, and in verse seven, we find the first reality that we must train others to serve Christ well. This is number one of nine. Train others to serve Christ well. Look there again at verse seven. Tychicus will tell you about my activities. He is a beloved brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord. I want you to squeeze this description of Tychicus with me until the philosophy of ministry from Paul begins to ooze out. There had to be a reason for this massive personal finale of Paul. This is proportionally the biggest exiting 
greeting section that Paul has in all of his letters. Why was Paul so interested in telling the Colossians about his co-laborers? Some say, well, it's because he didn't know the Colossians, and that's totally fine. But why is Paul uh, so clearly using these introductions as necessary and important and, and not superfluous and obligatory? Well, I think it's because that was Paul's normal MO, to always be teaching. And here, Paul is not just introducing, he is, in fact, teaching. He couldn't help himself but to teach the Colossians what they needed to know through these people that were going to be or had been serving them. And first, about Tychicus and Paul's training, I want you to see that Tychicus was with Paul in everything. You say, well, that's reading between the lines. Well, not really. Verse 7, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. How on earth would Tychicus know what Paul was doing in every area of his life, as Paul says, if Paul wasn't with Tychicus in everything? And that, friends, was a major factor in how Paul did ministry and trained others well for ministry. From fellowship to discipleship to evangelism, Paul always had those he was training alongside him, with him, serving with him. We so often view uh, training for ministry as a, a class or a course or a conference or a seminary. Paul viewed it as fellowship. We view fellowship as socializing. Paul viewed fellowship as partnership, more along the lines of what the word actually means, partnership. Too often our fellowship is just getting together, but Paul's fellowship had an agenda. Paul's fellowship had a purpose. Paul's fellowship had something they were partnering together with. I don't know what you, what, what you would see Paul do if you put him in a classroom with a whiteboard and a dry erase marker. I'm, I'm sure he'd be good at it. But I can guarantee what you would see Paul do if you decided to spend time and life with him. He would train you for further excellence in the ministry of our Savior. That's what Paul did. He trained people. Because as you fellowshiped with Paul, you partnered with Paul in all of your life, you would have been being trained by Paul in all of his life. And in this training, it was no forced relationship. Instead, it was a product of Paul's affection. If we're going to reproduce ourselves in our various ministries, if we're going to grow our people to, to grow into further, more excellent servants of the Lord, then we have to be with those we're training and we have to love those that we're training. And you see Paul's love for those that he was training just fall out of the pages of the New Testament. He calls Tychicus a beloved brother. He calls Titus a true child. Timothy is his beloved child. And, and as he loved these men, he gave them the key to his life. There was nothing off limits from Paul. He didn't send them to seminary. He took them with him to learn Christ from him. And this open door policy that Paul had both with his soul and with his schedule produced from Paul, abilities in those he was training to live like Paul for Christ. You say, well, I don't know about that. Well, that's fine. You can be wrong. But turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 10. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10. I realize this is Timothy and not Tychicus, but Paul's methodology is consistent throughout his pupils. And possibly the life of training that Paul practiced is no more clear than in the life of Timothy with Paul. Paul met Timothy, if you'll remember, in Acts chapter 16, from then on to the end of Paul's life, who was a constant person in his life, in his letters, in his schedule with him in ministry, Timothy. Timothy began as an observer, he progressed to a partner, and then one day he was just like Paul, serving the Lord Christ. But how? 
How did Timothy get there? How did Timothy advance? What seminary did Timothy go to? 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10, Paul's contrasting the godless false teachers that will come in the last days with how Timothy should look, how Timothy was trained, how Timothy must live in Christ. And he says, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10, 11, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Here's eight elements of Paul's life that Timothy observed in the good times, in the hard times, in the ugly times, in the times where Timothy thought the dude was dead. Paul says those are the tools that you learned ministry by. Of course, Paul gave Timothy theology. Of course, Paul taught Timothy the pure, unadulterated word of God, but it came coupled with life. And if you're thinking, well, this is Grace Bible Church, and we preach the Bible, and sometimes we preach for 55 minutes. Isn't that how we train for ministry? Isn't that how we, that we're equipped? Oh, friend, it's absolutely part of it. It's a, it's a huge part of it. It's a wonderful part of it, but it's not the only thing that we must do. Is it massive? Is it important? Yes, because it's taking the word of God and it's jamming it into nook and cranny of our, every nook and cranny of our soul, but it's not all that we need. No training and no preaching without the word of God is sufficient, so we have to have the word of God. We have to be trained by the word of God, but it's not enough. You say, but I thought it was enough. Second Timothy chapter three, verse 16 and 17, Paul goes on to say, all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for the teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Absolutely. God, God's word is taught to Timothy to equip him, but it's in the context of and on the canvas of what? Paul's life. Paul gives the word of God to Timothy, and it's as if the study guide to the word of God is Paul's very life for Timothy. Paul says, this is what the word of God says. Don't understand it? Just watch. It's not arrogance. Read Paul. He knew he was not Jesus. But the training we see in the New Testament, it's a mastering of biblical knowledge. It's worship-filled work. It's gospel-saturated activity. And this lifestyle training was Paul's to model before Timothy and everybody else. Consider Titus. In the context of discipleship, Paul says to Titus in chapter 2, verse 7 and 8, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. Show yourself and be a model of good works. Show yourself. Don't hide behind an email. Be a model of good works. Don't post something on social media. Show yourself. And don't fool yourself. It wasn't limited just to leadership. Paul tells the Philippians in chapter 3, verse 17, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Paul's passion for training was it's not lived out in a classroom, but it was lived in life. If we're going to grow the labor force of the Lord from Grace Bible Church, then we, that can't just happen on Wednesday night. It can't just happen on Sunday morning. It has to happen in more of life. It's going to take more time than you're often willing to give it because it takes all of our time. It's, in fact, our life. It's seeing, it's observing, it's trying, it's failing, it's accomplishing, it's mastering, and then being the example for someone else. That was Paul's method for the Corinthians. 
Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, a very familiar statement from Paul that he says often. He says, I urge you then be imitators of me. But then he goes on in verse 17. He says, that's why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways. Paul sends Timothy to remind the Corinthians of Jesus and himself. What does that mean? It means that Timothy was a carbon copy of Paul and Christ. He says, imitate me. And imitate Timothy because he knows how I would respond. He knows how I would teach. He knows what I would say. Follow us and follow Christ. Doctrine, life, training, imitation, it all comes out of one bucket for Paul. And it's life. Worshiping Christ, knowing Christ. It produced in Paul a passion to pass on Christ to others that would then take that truth and pass it on even farther. And it was always all about Christ. This reality of the gospel in Paul's life produced from Paul something that had to get out of Paul into the life of other people. And he did it over and over and over with passion and joy and fulfillment. A life changed by the gospel preached the gospel to people all over the known world and produced from them others who would then preach the gospel. I'm afraid we've forgotten that life and ministry are not separate events. Life is ministry. Or ministry is fake. Life is what we preach. Or what we preach is not true. The Puritans understood this, as Thomas Brooks will summarize for you. He says, a preacher's life should be a commentary of his doctrine. His practice should be a counterpart of his sermons. Heavenly doctrine should always be adorned with a heavenly life. That was Paul. And Paul demanded that that was all of the people that were under his care, under his tutelage, in his charge. This is what we say about Christ to be true and who we are. So this is how you have to live. We say the most important thing you could ever know is to to deny yourself and pick up your cross and follow Christ, and then we live for ourselves. Paul says, forget about it. And what's the result of Paul's life? He preached self-denial. He preached a life given to the worship of Jesus, and then he lived a life of self-denial and lived a life of worshiping Jesus. And what was the result? Men and women who trailed behind him and followed him and understood him and lived like him even when they were not with him. And that's what we must do. No matter who we are, we're all, as those who claim to be saved, we're all responsible to be living for what we say has saved us. Could there possibly be something in your life more important than what you say has saved you from eternal death and destruction? The greatest place for us to do this is in ministry together, to live together for the beauty of what has saved us. There's the disciple and the discipler, the trainer and the trainee. The sheep and the shepherd were both confronted with the truth and were both rubbing off on each other, realizing that we need to look more like one another because each other looks like Christ in this area. I don't. I need to look more like you as you look like Christ. And we grow in understanding Christ. We grow in our application and sanctification. If we're going to grow, if we're going to bear fruit in the one another ministries, then we have to follow Paul's example. We can't just do an hour of ministry and expect for all of a sudden life to be changed. We can't just show up at a service and think, well, this is going to just transform everyone around me. Notice how Paul's ministry on Tychicus' behalf changed him. Middle of verse 7, he is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and a fellow servant in the Lord. 
Old Tick, that's what I would have called him. Old Tick, he's family. He's family. He has a ministry role, and he's a fellow slave as one who serves the Lord. So what's the product of your training? What do others look like when you live life with them, pursuing the Lord with them? Well, what they're supposed to look like is beloved family. They're supposed to be family. They're supposed to be strategic and specific and faithful ministers, and they're supposed to be fellow servants or slaves in the Lord. It's the product of Paul's on-the-job training First is family. And obviously this is true for all of us. We're family. Romans chapter 8, verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. We're, we're family. But in the very natural sense, the more you pour into each other, the more reality you, re, you get that we are, in fact, uniquely family. There's no cold and calculated program or a website sign-up where Paul transforms people into ministry partners. It begins with his love and affection for them. He loves them. This is the beginning. Obviously his love for Christ, but it results in his love for them. And it doesn't say Tychicus loves Paul. We can gather that. We can trust that. But the point that Paul is making is that he loves Tychicus. I love how Paul describes Tychicus and many others in his ministry. And you know the Greek language has a whole bunch of words for love. And you're probably expecting that since he's talking about a beloved brother, that this is the word for brotherly love we say at Philadelphia. Well, that ain't it. This is the agape flavored love. Paul says there was nothing more about Timothy, Titus, Tychicus that I could love. I love them. In fact, it's the same word that God uses to describe his son. Matthew chapter three, verse 17, as his beloved son. Paul says, this is my guy. I love him with everything that I am. I love him. You want to see people in your realm of Christian activity and ministry and influence grow in their maturity and in their usefulness in ministry? Then love them. Not on occasion, not during the parameters of your ministry activity, but with all of your life, as Paul's example shows us. They are your beloved brothers. And sisters. I love ministry here at Grace Bible Church, but one of my favorite ministries is the nursery. I love how it's designed to love ladies well and for ladies to love each other, to grow each other, to serve with one another. And so many of those ladies, they end up going from there to serve in other places with joy and fulfillment and satisfaction. It's like the gateway drug to youth ministry. I mean, they're constantly getting stolen into there. But why? Because they learn this love and care for each other. And they learn the beauty of what ministry together is, and they want to do it more often. They learned love. If you don't love, then learn it. And that was Paul's activity. He loved and also, it kind of bears with it an unashamed agenda that Paul always have. Paul always had an agenda. He didn't just willy-nilly go through life and hope for the best. He was constantly pressing everyone to move forward in their love for Christ, to live for Christ, and especially with those he served with, to love them into greater usefulness for the kingdom. And that was true with Tychicus and true with many others. Paul's training regimen was to love his disciples and to put them into specific roles. Middle of verse seven, look what he says. He's a beloved brother. There's the love and a faithful minister. 
He's a faithful diakonos. I want you to see that Paul was very strategic with his efforts on Tychicus's behalf. Paul calls him this faithful minister and it harkens back to the early days of the apostles setting apart men to be deacons, to be servants. They had a specific role, keep the widows from causing all this craziness because some were getting fed and some weren't, so take care of them. They had a specific role and Paul fast forwards and he gives Tychicus specific roles. And the idea here is that Tychicus has something that he does, something that he accomplishes for Paul. And just as the early church identified deacons for specific reasons, Paul says, look, this dude's got this area of my life locked down and he does this for me. He does this for the kingdom. If you read the Pauline epistles, you'll know what Tychicus does. He was like the original UPS. He was the master delivery man. He was Paul's delivery man. He was constantly going between wherever Paul was to wherever Paul needed what he needed sent somewhere else. That was Tychicus's job. And he apparently did it with faithfulness and excellence. I'm going to read between the lines, but I bet Tychicus had some amazing thighs. <laughs> Have you ever been in that part of the world? Like, it ain't flat. And it wasn't safe either. You're like, well, Pax Romana. Yeah, I mean, the peace of Rome was significant and impressive, but here's Tychicus going from um, Asia Minor all the way to Rome, all the way to Colossae, around Ephesus. He's going all over the known world. And what do you have? You have bandits, you have droughts, you have famine, you got taxes. I bet Tychicus was a shrewd dude. I bet he was wise as a serpent, and I know he was innocent as a dove. He was, after all, Paul's original AOL. You know, he'd show up, you've got mail. It's incredible. And he took great pride in this responsibility. He got it done. When Paul said, here you go, Tychicus, he did it. It was done with Paul. He didn't have to think about it, didn't have to worry about it. He handed it off, and Tychicus was a faithful minister, a faithful servant, a faithful deacon, a faithful messenger to do what Paul needed him to do for the Lord. He took what Paul said, and he gave it to who Paul sent him, would we call that an amazingly glorious occupation? Probably not by earthly standards. But Tychicus loved it and was passionate about it. Why would I say that? How would I know that? Because of what Paul calls him. He calls him a sendalos. You read that and you see fellow servant. But Paul calls him a sendalos. You hear the word doulos, slaves, sendalos. They're mutual slaves of the same master. Paul connects them at the hip. He's like, we're together. We're guys together. We're beloved brothers. We're family. We're serving the Lord together. Paul says, we are owned together by Christ. We serve at his bidding. We labor for his glory. We live for his pleasure. We fight for his flag. We do his desire. We are his together. And keep in mind, the letter to Philemon is also in Tychicus's weathered hands here. And he stands next to Tychicus as Philemon's runaway slave is, is Onesimus right there. And Philemon is out in the audience as they're working this through. I bet that was a pretty impressive moment. But don't miss the spiritual reality that Paul sneaks in here to affect the worldly stuff going on in their congregation. Paul calls Tychicus a free man, a slave. Let your eyes wander to Onesimus's description, who was a slave, he doesn't call a slave. If Philemon wasn't paying attention in Colossians chapter 3, 11, where Paul said, here there is not Greek and Jew circumcised, 
an uncircumcised barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all in all. If, if, if Philemon wasn't paying attention there, here's another shot across the spiritual bow, like, hey, buddy, hold on a second. You think you, you, think you deserve something, but let me tell you what you deserve. Just, just, just hold on. Be a Christian brother before you're anything else. And we are sindalas as if we're serving Christ. We are mutually owned by Christ. Colossians 1.13, we've been delivered from the domain of darkness. How? We've been paid for. We've been ransomed. Somebody paid for us to take us out of the domain of darkness, to bring us into the kingdom of God's beloved son. We know what that payment was. We know who paid it. God the father paid the son's blood for us. There's no greater cost that he could have paid. He owned you in every wonderful and beautiful way. We're bought with a price, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20. Our life is Christ's to use for himself or we're not paying attention, or we're not, in fact, his. Paul lived it. Paul loved Tychicus. Tychicus lived it. Tychicus loved Paul. They both loved and served Christ together. And what do you see in the verse 7? Tychicus was a fellow servant in the Lord. No confusion. Tychicus didn't just merely do the bidding of Paul. They were slaves. Christ was the master. What's Lord mean? Master. Christ was the master. That's how training works. Paul, Paul loved Tychicus and, and equipped Tychicus and Tychicus understood it and Tychicus started doing it and then Tychicus was doing it on his own. I just read that one out of eight Americans has worked at McDonald's. Fascinating. Do you know their, you know their training philosophy? I do it, you watch. We do it together. And then you do it and I watch. Not that complicated. They got it from Paul. <laughs> you didn't know that. Maybe it's not true, but you understand that's how training works. That's what Christian training is. Paul says, look, this is what we need to do, old tick. Watch me. And, they, and then he does it with him. And then Paul's like, you got this. You go do it. And then what's Tychicus supposed to be doing? Training other people. You're, you've been drafted into this. You've been, you've been signed up by Christ because he paid for your life and he expects you to carry out his orders for him in a manner worthy of him because he's not just your leader. He's your owner. He's your master. And because he's not just your leader, he, he's paid the price and he, he knows what's best for you and he longs for you to do it. So live for him in such a way that his authority and his kingdom, his glory are everywhere in your life and his fame can't be ignored from how you do everything in your life because you make much of him wherever you can always. So we go, we labor, we press on, we go to work, we take care of the kids, we we. Do our stuff in retirement, whatever that might be. We do stuff for the glory of the Lord or we do stuff for the benefit of ourselves. There's not a lot of options. So we serve the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Tychicus doesn't serve Paul. Absolutely he serves Paul. But Paul wouldn't say, this is my assistant. Paul says, we're fellow servants of the Lord. The king, the master, and the whole letter to the Colossians has been to magnify and, and 
make the beauty of Christ known to these people, these brothers and sisters in Colossae, the Lord. Who is he? Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 and 16. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. If that truly is Christ, then how can we live for anything or anyone else? Tychicus, fellow slave of the Lord, the true master. If our passion is not to live for Christ, it can only mean that we don't know him. Because if we know him, how could we not live for him? Maybe it means we're running with him, running from him instead of with him. I don't know. But when we know who Christ is and we know what he's done, we want to serve him. It becomes our passion to live for him. We want to be a part of his beloved family, faithfully serving in strategic roles that he's given us with these people who are our fellow slaves for the beauty of Christ. If you want to model Paul's ministry, then train others to serve Christ well. And second, we're going to speed up. Second, trust others to serve Christ well. Look at verse 8. I, still speaking of Tychicus, I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Paul turned him loose. Paul could have exercised his apostolic authority to build his ministry around the prison there and instead he sends his best because Jesus deserved it. So Grace Bible Church, don't be afraid to share and send our best because Jesus uses them where he puts them. And hoarding, while it may be acceptable in your house, is not good in the church. Hoarding the best indefinitely is selfish. GBC doesn't need all the best of everything. Christ deserves the best wherever he wants to send them. Do you think Paul loved sending Tychicus? Well, I think he loved sending him. But do you think Paul felt Tychicus' Tychicus's absence? Yeah, I think he did. Because he could give anything he needed to, to to old Tick and he'd make it work. And all of a sudden, Tychicus is gone. So I'm sure he felt his absence. But Paul's passion for Christ's glory and the gospel to advance was more than his personal comfort or the beauty of his present ministry. And so he said, hey, get out of here and go take care of those people. We'll see you in a bit. Paul exercised his authority as an apostle to mobilize others. Apostle means sent ones. So Paul was just doing what had been done to him, mobilizing others in the ministry, not building a personal kingdom. Paul sent them. He didn't hoard them. And what is he going to do in Colossae? What is Tick going to do in Colossae? He's going to bridge the gap between what Paul has said and what they understand. He's going to help them understand Paul and he's going to make sure that they get what Paul has said and he's going to make sure that if he needs to, he clarifies things because Paul said some hard things in the letter to the Colossians. They need their Christology sharpened. They need their sanctification redirection and their epistemology reworked and Paul's dropped some Paul bombs right in their lap and so Epaphras or Tychicus is going to say, hey, listen, this is what he meant. And this is what you need to do with this. And when, what do you think Paul's going to say? Sweet. He's not meddling. Paul, Paul trusts Tychicus to do this. Training others without mobilizing and trusting others is controlling others. We can't do that. Paul served Tychicus and sent 
Tychicus and Christ controlled these things. Third, if you're going to learn from Paul's ministry example, then verses 9 to 11 teach you second chances and faithfulness should abound in a Christ-oriented ministry. We'll find the focus of Paul on three guys, Onesimus, Aristarchus, and Mark. Onesimus was a failure, but now he's faithful. Onesimus was a law-breaking, runaway slave thief. And then he got saved. He met Paul. And Paul says, did you know your name means useful? Uh, you can be useful to me. And Paul put him to work. Onesimus doesn't need an introduction to the Colossians. He needs a reintroduction. He was one of them, but when he left them, he wasn't who he is now. Paul says, you know who, who you're receiving back, but let me tell you something, he's different than when you had him. Instead of a runaway slave, you have a faithful brother. Instead of a pain in your neck and a hole in your pocket, you have a beloved brother. What a transformation. From on the lamb to for the lamb. I thought that was good. From runaway to welcome home. This is what the Colossians are supposed to do. This is the whole letter to Philemon is reminding Philemon he has obligations that go beyond the, the local economy. He has obligations to the Lord. Here's Onesimus from can't be trusted to, hey, everybody listen to him. He's going to tell you everything that has taken place here. Paul puts Onesimus on a pedestal of integrity. Wow. And again, notice he doesn't call him a slave. By all legal rights, he still was one. And he had to deal with that. He and Philemon had to go out to coffee. Paul isn't giving anybody any reason to do anything but trust and admire Onesimus. Can you imagine standing before your old church, the one you had served in and probably claimed Christ in? And seeing your master that you'd stolen from and run away from and then coming back, that'd have been intimidating. Here you are. Every temptation is for all of them to look down on you and for all for you to just feel full of shame. But the apostle says, hey, he's good. He's faithful. He's with me. Second chances, church, should abound when we're following Christ. Aristarchus, he seems a little bit distant from this situation, but he's a longtime partner of Paul, and Paul calls him a fellow prisoner, from a fellow slave to a fellow prisoner. Isn't status such a worldly thing? When you meet new people, whether you're in an elevator at a hotel, well, not there because nobody talks, but when you're in the airport or you're at a conference or you're at a wedding and you're sitting at a table with people you don't know, it's like everybody's kind of jockeying for position to see who's, you know, like the most important person at the table or who has the cutest kids at the table or whatever, you know, you're trying to figure out. Paul doesn't care. He has nothing for worldly title and status. Paul says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, he greets you. I love it. You almost feel a camaraderie of difficulty. You've heard misery loves company. Paul seems to imply that for Christian, difficulty builds camaraderie. Paul and Aristarchus were often together. You'll find them together. Acts chapter 19, verse 29, when Paul sends the Ephesians into a riot, guess who was there? Aristarchus. I think he was probably a pot-stirring kind of guy. And when they traveled to Greece, who went with them? 
Aristarchus, chapter 20, verse 24. Many people think the Aristarchus in Acts chapter 27 and one of Paul's shipwrecks was this Aristarchus. And here in Colossians chapter 4, they're fellow prisoners. They've been at it again. What was it? We don't know. Had something to do with the gospel. And there they are stuck in jail together. Fellow prisoners. Christians don't need status. We need each other. Paul says, this is my guy. In difficulty, we find fellowship. Peter puts the words or the sentiment into words. First Peter chapter four, verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. This life is temporal. Glory for God is eternal. Stop living for temporal status and live for eternal glory. You say, that's difficult. You want friends? You want brothers? You want life together with people? Then embrace the difficulty. Love it as you love these brothers and sisters. Here they are in prison, but they're in prison together for Christ, faithful to the end. Notice a man I hope you remember from our study in his gospel, Mr. Immediately himself. Mark shows up in verse 10 as well. Mark, a man we love for his gospel, being the pen to Peter's eyewitness. Mark was a failure at one point in his life, if you remember. And it's because of Paul's parenthetical statement here about Mark and, hey, you need to welcome him if he shows up. I would guess that what the Colossians knew about Mark was probably the problem time in his life and not the solution time in his life. Mark had grown up in Jerusalem. His mom was a somebody in the church in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 12, verse 12, you can read about it there. And for a time, Mark got wrapped into the ministry of Paul and Barnabas. And they were together as a team, and he worked alongside them, Mark 12, 25 to 13, 12. But then he got homesick, missed his mama's hummus, lost his nerve, wanted to come home. And what did he do? Well, he didn't just leave. He blew up the greatest dynamic duo of missions the world had ever known, Paul and Barnabas. That was Mark. Mark was a problem. Mark was a failure. Mark was somebody to be avoided. But Paul says, hey, hold on. You know that other stuff, but when he comes, make sure you welcome him. Remember, Paul said he's not a viable ministry partner. I'm not taking him. And Barnabas says, well, he's family. I don't know. We need to take him. And they had such a split over it. Paul took Silas and Barnabas took Mark, they wouldn't either budge, and so they broke apart. And this is the kind of thing that churches never seem to get over. And Paul tells us something very simple. Grow up. Get over it. Were there things that Mark needed to grow in? Absolutely. Read Acts, and he did grow. Pay attention. He had to grow. But what does Paul eventually do? Hey, we can work together. Second chances should abound because they help people in their faithfulness and their efforts towards faithfulness. Christ is worth more from us than our past failures being our complete and total limitation. Here in the timeline of Mark's ministry, he's growing from a failure what he was to a productive and trusted Christian what he is to what we find in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. Do you remember if we fast forward five years or so in Paul's life? What's Paul going to say about Mark? 2 Timothy 4, 11. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark. Bring him to me. Bring him with you. For he is very useful to me for ministry. Isn't that where we all want to end up? Useful to the Lord 
for ministry. So you see where you start does not matter. That's where you end up. Praise the Lord. Notice the marks of these faithful men, including justice in verse 11. They were like in culture. They were men of the circumcision. They were fellow workers. No effort by Paul to make an organizational flowchart. Paul doesn't say, this guy's number one, two. These are the leads. These are direct reports, you know. <laughs> these are my guys. They're going to serve. Who was in charge? Who was the leader? Was Paul? Oh, yeah. He was the apostle. But did Paul have to remind everybody? No. There's no I an apostle. Why did they serve? Middle of verse 11. For the kingdom of God. That's why they served. Not because Paul asked them, not because Paul trained them, but because they wanted to serve the kingdom of God. And this is a phrase that normally it's kind of like the banner over the narrow gate. But here, Paul's using it as a motivation. This is what we want to do for, why do we want to serve in ministry? Because it's for the kingdom of God. Why do Onesimus and Aristarchus and Paul and Justice give their lives to serve with Paul for the kingdom of God, not Paul? Because they've given their life to Christ and they long to make more and better disciples of him all over the world. Notice how Paul closes verse 11. A very personal encouragement. A very personal reality of camaraderie. These people encouraged me. Paul received personal benefit from them. Don't we just need brothers and sisters who occasionally tell us God is in control and they're with us and they're for us? Paul did. If Paul did, it's okay if you do. Paul had it in these men. So fourth, if you want to minister like Paul, commend others and be an encouragement. Look at Paul's notes on Epaphras. We've already studied Epaphras at the beginning of the book of Colossians. But verse 12, Epaphras, who's one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. So first, Paul defined Epaphras as a servant of Christ. In Paul's lexicon, was there any higher praise than that? He's a, he's a servant of Christ. What else do you need to know about Epaphras? He's a servant of Christ. You want something better on your tombstone than that? What would it possibly be? He's a servant of Christ. And what did Epaphras do to merit this high praise from Paul? He was struggling on behalf of these Colossian believers in prayer. In ministry, there is no doubt always struggle. But don't miss, Paul says, he's struggling in prayer on their behalf. Ministry wasn't what he did because it was easy. Ministry wasn't what he did because it was how he was gifted. Ministry is what he did because it was his passion. It was his priority. It wasn't his obligation. It was his desire. It wasn't his duty. And he did it through prayer. Jesus struggled in the Garden of Gethsemane, the oil press. If you'll remember Luke chapter 22, verse 44, he struggled in prayer. The same word. Epaphras struggles on behalf of those that he loves. And Paul commends him for it. He says, this is the guy. This is your guy. He's with me now, but don't worry. He's for you. Ministry done in perfection is often ministry that leaves the important things undone because you're too chicken to fail. If you're not struggling in ministry, you're only striving for what you can accomplish. And if your ministry is what you can accomplish, it is in fact that your ministry and not Jesus's. If you're not failing, you're serving in your own ability. So if you're failing, then praise the Lord. I love what J. Oswald Sanders says. 
In his classic book, Spiritual Leadership, he says, fatigue is the price of leadership. Mediocrity is the result of never getting tired. This is Paul's life lived in front of Epaphras. This is Epaphras' life lived for the Colossian people. The dude was struggling, fighting, laboring on their behalf. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty eight. 28, Paul says, apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me, on my anxiety for all the churches. Paul felt this. Epaphras learned this. Epaphras lived this, and Paul commends him for it. Did Epaphras have faults? Surely he did. Did he have areas where he needed to grow? Absolutely. But Paul says, look, he's the real deal. He's worked his tail off, and I'm commending him for it. I'm pointing it out to all of you and to all those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Listen, Paul says to Epaphras. You see, if we never commend and encourage others in our ministry, then our ministry is likely for them to commend and encourage us. Paul was always praising God for his work in the lives of others. Fifth, if you're going to serve like Paul, trust the Lord with the future. Verse 14, Luke. This is Luke before he's known as the Luke X Luke. He probably had written that by this time, but maybe it wasn't in wide circulation quite yet. He's a Gentile tagging along with Paul. We know he's a physician because of what Paul says, and we know Paul was a sick dude. He was struggling. He'd been stoned at Derby. He had health problems. He had all kinds of reasons to need his own personal physician, and it seems like that's what Luke did. He followed Paul and helped him and cared for him and made sure he had what he needed. And this is before, you know, Luke had become the best-selling author. They, they hadn't circulated the letter quite yet, maybe that much. But Paul calls him this beloved physician. Beloved. There was mutual affection and care. I wonder how great an impact Paul thought his letter, Luke Acts, was going to have in the world. I don't know. But if you're the apostle and you're writing scripture, and you know God's inspired you, and then you got this other dude that's doing it too, what's the temptation? Temptation would be if ministry's about you, be like, hey, I got that. Why don't you just worry about the pills? You know, get my poultice worked up. That's all you need to do. No, Paul loves it. Paul loves him as a physician. Paul supported him as a writer. Well, verse 14 wasn't all easy. There's Demas in prison with Paul as well, or at the prison with Paul as well. Demas's name may seem familiar. It's 62 AD in Colossians when the book of Colossians is written. Paul's first imprisonment. Paul's second imprisonment, he writes second Timothy. And as you know, if his name sounds familiar, in the second Timothy epistle, he's writing a letter to Timothy. He says, hey, do your best to come to me. Bring Mark, bring my coat, bring the Bible. And then verse 10, why? For Demas, in love with the present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. In 62, Demas is a partner. In 67, Demas is an apostate. Maybe just a ministerial deserter, but sure seems like worse. In love with the present world. Can you imagine that? Not if you don't trust the Lord for the future. Paul poured into this guy just like he did Epaphras, just like he did Tychicus. And here's Demas from faithful to gone. So trust the Lord with the future. Sixth, widen your circle when you can. 
Paul says, give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and then the church in her house. Paul loved to connect brothers and sisters in the family of God. He loved to connect churches. He loved to use churches to care for churches. He loved it. When you love your church family, isn't it special to bring people to church? Like we actually enjoy church. At least some of you. Like we like to bring people. This is, I love this church. Oh, that's great. Have you ever gone to church with somebody who didn't like their church? Kind of gives you the willies. Like what are we supposed to do here? Why are we even here? Paul loved his churches. Widen your circle when you can. Seventh, don't forget half the kingdom. Paul says, give my greetings to Nympha and the church in her house. I want to quote a gentleman and a scholar, Doug Moo. He says this about Nympha. Why Paul singles out Nympha and the church that met in her house for special attention is impossible to know. I appreciate that because we don't know why. But what we do know is she is a woman and there's a church in her house. She was a widow, a church in her house. I appreciate what Paul's saying here. Some people say, well, Paul's sweet on her. I'm like, that's foolish. And some other people say, well, surely Paul wouldn't have written this because you've read 1 Timothy. You know what Paul says about women. What does he say about women? They have a role in the church. So they should do their role in the church. Have you read Titus chapter two? They have a role in the church. They should do it. What does it mean for a widow to be hosting a church in her house? It means she's sacrificing of herself for other people, for the good of other people. Widows, they didn't often have a future in Paul's day, and here she is giving of her future for the good of a church. So Paul commends her. He shouts out to her. It's a beautiful thing. We need the other half of the kingdom in ministry. Have you ever met a young pastor who's good at discipling young women? Let me answer for you. No. (laughs) This is why we're not supposed to. Titus chapter 2 says that's the... Older ladies' job, they should do that. We need women in the church for many different reasons, so don't forget half the kingdom Paul never did. Eighth, share what you have. Paul says, don't lock my letter up, share it. Share it with the Laodiceans and get theirs as well. Bring those to your people. Read what I've said to them. Christians, the kingdom is bigger than Grace Bible Church. Ninth, trust others to continue training. Paul's connection with Archippus is only known by speculation. We don't know. But Paul is telling the Colossians to keep him on the right track. Paul understood Jesus was the Messiah, not him. And Paul needed help serving, loving, and advancing the gospel. He did so through trusting others. Say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. What humility from the Apostle Paul. He gets help from these people. He says, I need your help. Make sure that guy knows what he's doing. Our ministry should always be bigger than us. If our ministry never needs the help of other people, it is in fact our ministry and not the Lord's. Our ministry should always be bigger than us because Christ deserves more than we alone can offer. But when we labor alongside of each other, when we love each other, and when we work together as sinless, as fellow servants of the one master, we get to feel the beauty and the wonder of Paul's life, always more of Christ and advancing the kingdom and seeing people go from problems to solutions, from those who are broken to those who are useful, from those who are deserters to those who are faithful. Paul concludes where we'll conclude next time. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Let's pray. Father, we feel that amazing, unbelievable, inexhaustible, and profound grace when we live lives of service to you for your glory. So help us to do that. We need your help. So many draws and pulls in this life. Help us to value Christ above and beyond all things. To long for just him. 
and to live for just him. Help us. He deserves it and we need help. So we ask in Jesus' name, amen.